From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Before Colin Kaepernick, a Denver nugget refused to stand for the national anthem to protest racial injustice. At some point, you develop confidence. The confidence turns into courage. It's like, I got to do something with this information. I'm on a mission that I'm going to live and die, you know, with a free conscience and a free soul before I get out of here. Today, a conversation with Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who's written his autobiography in the blink of an eye. That's how quickly he lost his basketball career. You can't outclass racism. I don't care if you're a doctor, an athlete, or whatever. But it's tough to make a choice and take the risk of losing your livelihood, potentially your life, over an idea that means the world to you. That's when you really test it. If you're looking to get rid of a car, running or not, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is simple. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Donating your car is a powerful way to support the news and music you value. Make a difference by donating your car to CPR. Start on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A professional athlete protests injustice by sitting out the national anthem. There's a firestorm, and before long, his career is over. Now, while there is a connection, this is not a story about a certain National Football League quarterback. I mean, this is 1996. This is pre-social media, pre-Black Lives Matter. You know, this was just not being done in sports in 1996. Mark Bordeaux-Duarouf had the courage to withstand someone taking their livelihood away from them. And that's a whole different level of activism. That's a whole different stratosphere. He was kind of the Kaepernick before Kaepernick. Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf led the Denver Nuggets in scoring in 1996, but the following year, he was off the team, then out of the NBA entirely, in the blink of an eye, as it were. And that is the title of Abdul Raouf's new autobiography. He spoke with my colleague Anthony Cotton, and a note, their conversation was recorded before officers were charged in the beating death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, and before footage of that fatal encounter was released. Mahmoud, welcome to the program. Sounds good. We mentioned that there's a connection between you and Colin Kaepernick. Your book was released by his publishing company, which he created in part to ensure that stories like yours would indeed be told. How much interaction, if any, did you have with him? I mean, I would think those would be some pretty deep conversations the two of you would have. Yes, we uh, we spoke actually prior to us getting into this business arrangement with the book. We had a mutual friend named Hashim Alauddin in, um, in the Bay Area where we met in his office, we spoke for about an hour, all of us together. And uh, it was a thought-provoking conversation. Uh, The takeaway that I got out of everything during that one hour was when he made the statement that this is the most free that he's ever felt in his life. And that resonated with me. Uh, And it's that type of freedom that allowed him and so many that came before him to be able to take the position that he took along with myself and so many others. 
Now, that's interesting because there was one thing I was going to ask you about. In the book, you talk about how when you were growing up, you were always afraid that something bad was just around the corner from happening to you. Mm-hmm. And we'll obviously talk about the national anthem controversy. But I wonder, was that kind of the fear coming to pass, the anthem controversy? Or did you find that freeing in some ways yourself when you took that stand? It was feeling free that enabled me to reach the point of of making those types of decisions. Not only did I make then, but that I'm continuing to make now. Uh, it's nothing like it. And, and it started with actually Dale Brown giving me the autobiography of Malcolm. And I began to read his story. And and then as 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 you're reading his story, you know, he, obviously his intelligence shines through. But but on top of that, you know, you're talking about an individual that was fearless. You know, he had the courage and the bravery that many of us don't have. And as a competitor, you know, I'm that person when I see something that that I know that I have a weakness in, I'm trying to adopt that. And I didn't have that at the time. Growing up in the South, you know, the things that you see and how the relationships between Blacks and whites are and how they so reserved and they become silent. And I knew that that's not something that I wanted for myself. And so the more that I began to read, it, it produces something in you. You want to share it. And you realize that there are a lot of people that think like you once you begin to share it. They have similar ideas. The only problem is it's just conversation. And then at some point, you develop confidence. The confidence turns into courage. It's like, I got to do something with this information. And so that was the process with me uh, that began to occur and um, that enabled me to take those positions and still do. In the book, you write about the reaction of African-Americans when they were around whites, how how they would defer and and suddenly get all quiet. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's something that bothered you and like you say, perhaps even was a factor in your speaking out. Very much so. Uh, I used to see, whether it be my mother, my uncles, my aunts, and people outside of me. You know, when you're talking to each other, there's a certain diction and a confidence that that you see. But in the presence of white people, right, there's there's this uh it's almost physical surrender you know verbal surrendering it's like they're trying their diction changes their demeanor changes they're smiling beyond what they normally do it's like they're putting on airs and and i was that way right because it's a conditioning you you tend to and then the stories you hear you know well just play the game you know don't do this and don't do that and this becomes a part of the culture and I just knew for me, it didn't make me feel good. And I always had to wrestle with myself, even at a, at a young age. You know, you know that there's a saying by Waldo Emerson, right? Wherever you go, there you are. You know, you can run from somebody else, but you can't run from yourself. It was the autobiography that really shifted things for me. And, and I began to learn, take little steps in learning how to say no to people and what that felt like to see them disappointed after being a yes man for so long. And you get stronger, like they say with anything, right? If you're trying to be great at something, you gotta practice, right? Whether it's great with your morality, great with telling people things. So I just, the more I practiced, the more strength that I was developing along the way. And I didn't want my life when it was all said and done. You know, you start thinking bigger because reading 
especially depending on who you're reading, it's like, wow, these are thinkers and these are people really making a difference with their ideas. And what is my future going to say for itself? Is the only thing that someone's going to remember of me is, man, he was a really nice guy. He could get his shot off real quick. And he was, he played basketball very well. Well, to me, that's a wasted life. I don't want to go out like that. Let's go back to that 1995-96 season. It was relatively late in the year. You came under fire for not standing for the anthem. What was the thinking behind it? I began to be introduced to a lot of different authors. Um, I wasn't great in school, but after I became Muslim, uh, there was a bookstore on Colfax named Salam Bookstore. And he had so much material, I mean, history books, political books, you name it. And I would take these books and I, I would read, but also on the road, I would meet people and they would have, we would be up two, three, four o'clock in the morning if we didn't have to leave. And they would specialize in different disciplines, right? Whether it was the social sciences or whatever, we would just sit up talking and they would introduce me to so many books, whether it was Jawanza Kunjufu, Amoson Wilson, Randall Robbins. I mean, the list is long, you know, uh, Aaron Lottie Roy, Noam Chomsky, Gore Vidal, Howard Zinn. And so as I'm reading, I'm coming across stuff, right? Obviously that I didn't get in school, whether it be LSU, whether it be high school. And about just the condition that the world is in, America's involvement, you know, whether it's farm or whether it's domestic. And I start to, wow, there's a system behind this. You know what I mean? It's just not about be, being a person of merit and working hard. There's actually a system that, that if you're a person of color, right, in particular, there are barriers and barricades set up against you, you know? And uh, I started to, I, one, I started to feel that I was cheated educationally by not having access to this or not being presented to me. And then it angered me that the world is, is the way it is. Reading all of this information, I'm like, man, I can't, there's no way in hell I'm going to sit and just pretend that this doesn't exist. That's not in my nature anymore. And I have to find, I have to do something. And so I started taking those small steps and it was personal to begin with, just like telling people no, right? And reading and thinking things, I said, you know, I can't, I can't stand for this when it represents so much evil as far as I'm concerned. And it was about four months Previously, that no one even said anything about it. They didn't. They weren't. They weren't aware. And it was that next season that Todd Ely came to me and said, "I forget the journalist that someone had uh, uh, noticed that I wasn't standing, and would I like to do an interview?" I said, "No problem," because I had also decided at that time that I'm on a mission that I'm gonna live and die, you know, with a free conscience and a free soul before I get out of here. It didn't go over very well, either with the Nuggets front office or NBA officials. Mm -hmm. You were suspended by the league and effectively removed from the team. And of course, there were fans across the country who thought you should, to use a phrase that became popular later, shut up and dribble. You have to stand up for the national anthem. It's your country and you should be proud of it. He's in America. He gets paid by an American company. So America is the reason why uh, he's making the big bucks. And I mean, he should at least respect that. Ask Mahmoud if he'd rather not get paid in American dollars. 
So those were some of the fans commenting, you know, after after the situation happened. We're more than a quarter century later. What comes to mind when you when you hear people like that or when you look back at the entire situation? Oh, wow. I don't think we have enough time in this interview <laughs> to to express all that comes to my mind. But it, look, it's when, when I as athletes, whether you're an entertainer, athlete, doctor, uh, in particular, I, I think at, by far black athletes, we are conditioned to be put into a box, right? And especially when you're trying to come out and say something like this, you know, something social, political, or what, what have you. Uh, you're trying to be a social activist. Um, and it's just the condition that I think most of us are in. You know, we're, we're uh, as if though athletes, the, the, this is all we are as human beings. Look, we, we grew up in, most of us, most people in the NBA grew up in similar socioeconomic conditions. We know what it feels like. You know, like you can't, you can't outclass, you can't outclass racism. I don't care if you're a doctor, an athlete or whatever. You know, being black in this country is almost like it's a, it's a huge stain. You're still going to get killed because you're black. And even the sense of, oh, you come from America and all of these things. You know, this sense of American exceptionalism or American innocence, like America is so exceptional. It's the best country in the world. We don't do any wrong. And when we do wrong, well, it was a mistake. It wasn't intended. You know, this is also a conditioning that we have to get over, I think, as human beings in this country. Uh, there's so many things that's wrong. Uh, and yes, there's some good good to hear, obviously. You know, there's some countries you can't even have this conversation. You're going straight to jail, right? Right. Or they make they may kill you. So that's that's a plus, but that doesn't erase the fact that because there's so much, whether we want to talk about the medical industry, whether we want to talk about education, whether we want to talk about militarism, law enforcement, I mean, you name it. There's, there's a laundry list, an encyclopedic list of so many things that's taking place that's, that's, uh, that's oppressive that we need to deal with. You know, having to make choices Right. You have over 40 million people without health insurance, but we're supposed to be so exceptional. Right. The cost of making those decisions to pay for my mortgage or pay for my health. And these are the things that I began to think about, even at, at when, when I'm reading this stuff. Now, I'm coming across this information. Of course, you can't have you can't say all of this in a small segment on television or the radio. But I mean, it would take segments just to deal with all of the things that's taking place, man, and people are. People are disgruntled. They're unhappy, white and black, across the board. And I'm talking about on the street. I'm not talking about what the media says. I'm talking about when I go in the grocery store, when I'm on the plane, when I'm in the airport, when when uh, I'm in gyms, right? I'm talking about conversations. I'm talking about social media, white and black, Christian or non. People are upset. And so this is why I'm so adamant about having these conversations. No, I'm not the smartest. I'm not the brightest. But that's not a reason. My thing is, whatever you know, I don't care how minute it is, you, you, you act upon it and God will take care of the rest. And that's how you learn, by throwing it out there. And the person comes back and they say, hey, uh, I don't agree with that. And this is why. Oh, okay. That, that kind of makes sense. Oh, it don't make sense. And this is how you work, your, work these ideas out. And then you develop a strategy to, to try to 
bring about change. And even though we're one, I'm one person, you know, we're we're a small group, but there's power. There's power in in and you know having the right type of heart and energy of wanting to get something done. And so this is my mission and this is what I've been about from time I started reading it in Denver, Colorado, up until now. You mentioned the idea of conversations and social media and and stuff that's out there. I wanted to ask about that in the context of a of a current NBA player, Brooklyn mm-hmm. Nets guard Kyrie Irving. He mm-hmm. was suspended earlier this year for allegedly promoting anti-Semitism. He's been ridiculed for, for his viewpoints about things like whether or not the earth is flat or round. Do you relate to his situation at all? Of course. You know, here's a, here's a young man. I talked to Kyrie prior to that incident, much prior, uh, 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 about an hour. And Kyrie came off to me as an individual. Not only was he intelligent, but he was articulate, but also it's bigger than basketball for him. He had mentioned to me, he said, Mamu, my, pretty much my game speaks for itself. My legacy is pretty much established in terms of basketball. I'm just paraphrasing. But he said, man, really for me, it's about how can I generate change or engineer change and be of assistance to humanity? And that resonated with me. And so I think you have an individual that's evolving. He's beginning to ask questions, right? He's beginning to present ideas, throwing it out there. It takes guts to throw out, especially that topic, because this anti-Semitism, this word has been weaponized by far. And the the vulgar deceit, I think, and slander that was associated with Kyrie was despicable for the simple fact that, look, man, all of this stuff I'm presenting, you know, you didn't come at this company like this. You didn't come at an Amazon owner like this, but I'm an easy target. And it was really less about Kyrie. It was like, you know what? Really was sending a message, just like with me, just like with Colin, just like with Muhammad. We're sending a message to other athletes and people who dare speak out that if you go down this road, this is what will happen to you. There's this tendency when you say something about Zionism, it's also anti-Semitism. So it's off the, you can't say anything related to Jewishness, right? Jews are not a monolith. Jews are not perfect. Muslims are not a monolith, right? There's differences. There's good and bad, you know? And so, but you got to deal with that. You got to. And so I, when I heard him say that and I, and I heard the backlash, I'm like, boy, they still at it. Still at it. And it's interesting to me, as you wrote in the book, how accepted, you know, say a guy running around out on the road with with women other than his wife for gambling, you know, because when you played gambling was a much bigger deal. That was accepted. But somebody having thoughts, you know, and expressing, you know, wanting to have those conversations were looked upon so terribly. And it, it was that way then, it's, it's that way now, and if we don't change it, it's going to be that way in the future. And because, look, people, we don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable for some reason. We want to enjoy our sports. 
right? But but it's okay for the NBA to say, hey, can you support us in this cause? Can you support us in that cause, right? For this, whether humanitarian cause or whatever, but yet when it's time to talk, these are causes that affect humanity. So when you watch an NFL game now and you see, you know, the helmets and they have phrases like Black Lives Matter or, you know, end racism, or you watch an NBA game and there are stencils on the court to that same effect. Do you think it's disingenuous? Do you, like, what's your reaction to it? Um, I think it's for public consumption. I think it's to, in some ways to capitalize on it. You know, th- these people are savvy, uh, the industry. Uh, Richard Itton, a political scientist, had written something a while back, saying something down the lines of, he cautions against viewing protests as inherently revolutionary. Because once it becomes routine and accepted, it's easily molded, you know, and shaped into the power structure's hegemonic understanding of things, right? Where they can bottle it up, they can sell it, they can oh, they can make T-shirts, they can right because now it's popular, and so now it doesn't necessarily have the same effect, right? And so this is this is one of the things that they've been crafty and, and savvy at doing, and so when I see that, this is what I'm seeing right? Trying to water it down in this way. So you have a lot of athletes who are saying things now, allowed to speak out, depending on what it is that you're communicating. You know, it's it's business as usual. And I get it. I get it. I don't agree with it, but I understand it, you know? And uh, yeah, this is just, until until we develop tough skin and are willing to risk, you know, I know it's tough. Look, man, it, believe me, uh, I lived it and I'm still living it as a result of it, you know, because uh, you can never recuperate those those things that left your hands. Right. Um, but it's tough to make a choice and take the risk of losing your livelihood, potentially your life over an idea that means the world to you. Right? That's when you really test it. I think Martin Luther King said the true test is not in times of ease. This is the time of hardship. And so when I see all of that, this is what I think about. And until we develop this type of Muhammad Ali spirit and all of these athletes who have stood up and taken positions and taken risks, Kyrie's even, you know, and, and, and the Collins, man, we're going to continue to go through this cycle. If one of your children came to you and, and said, Dad, I want to be in the NBA. I want to be in the NFL. What would your reaction be? What would you say? One of them does. And uh, he's my youngest. And I tell him what I tell all of my children, that uh, one, uh, arm yourself with knowledge. Arm yourself with faith first. And, you know, because my thing is, Whatever God has for you, nobody can keep it from you. And whatever he don't have for you, nobody can give it to you. And so make sure that you're strong in your willpower and your faith and your intelligence. And 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 and, uh, and, and at some point, that's fine. Pursue that. But understand that there's a business. And there are a lot of people that if, if you're holding true to your convictions, they don't want certain things around them. So also I tell them about thinking in terms of ownership, right? 
have other things that you can have going for yourself. I say, look, follow your heart, go for it, but understand, understand people and understand systems. There's some things that just aren't welcomed uh, and it could cost you in terms of your livelihood. And I tell anybody this, and I, t- I tell all of my children this. There was a phrase that, that you used in the book um, that I may be applicable here. You said, how can you, in good faith, give me something I didn't earn, which means you deprived someone of something that they deserved? Like, are you are you afraid that your children perhaps wouldn't get a fair chance because of who you are and, and what you did? Oh, of course. that That's possible. Yeah, I mean, listen, I've, I've, been, I've been denied a lot of things based upon not just my past, but based upon how I am now. And I don't, I don't ever, uh, listen, I, I'm, I'm determined not to allow any, my enemies, whether it's government, whether it's NBA, whether it's somebody personal, uh, to get the better of me and outmaneuver my destiny. This is just my humble opinion, right? And I think that all of those things are possible. Uh, because you have people that hold grudges. They don't let things go. And they they penalize someone because they're associated with you. You hear this term again. I see this still in high school basketball, junior high basketball. I mean, this is this is a disease that people have. Like, they don't like this person, so I'm not going to play their son. Well, I don't like him and what he stood for, so I'm not going to hire you, Right. And that's unjust. And so, yeah, I definitely believe that's the case because it happens to me continuously. So we talked about Kyrie. I wanted to bring up another current player, Steph Curry, who's widely considered by by many to be the best long-range shooter of all time. And part of that is because of the stage he's been on winning championships with uh, the Golden State Warriors. But also it's because, again, with social media, you can't avoid seeing him. Now, there are some who would say that, like Colin Kaepernick, you were Steph Curry before Steph Curry. Do you, do you look upon it that way? You know, there are always going to be comparisons, and some of them are right on the money and some of them are not. We definitely have similarities. Um, he's just in a different era, and he, he has and he has a different assignment. You know, when I came out, you have Denver. Uh, and there was an era when you go through the big man, whether the big man was great or not, you, you're running your offense through the big man, right? Uh, unless you shoot even Jordan, they've had, uh, I forget the, the offense they had. The triangle. But, yeah, they're trying. They're running it through, but it's going to eventually get back to Jordan. But, uh, and it was a different era where you, you're not shooting a lot of threes, right? And the system, the system was different. And so now he's maximizing it. Uh, I mean, definitely he has the skill and he works very hard. He's confident, but he's also systems matter, right? You can have, and and we talk about this a lot. You can have a person with enormous abilities, but if he's not in the right system, you're not going to never, never really see it, right? The right, uh, you you need a coach that that's able to see that and formulate a system to maximize all the talent of the players. So the time was different, um, but there are similarities. We both have quick releases. We both can shoot it deep. 
We can shoot mid-range. You know, we can get our shot off. But Golden State has a – you know, we used to call it back then, no, you had a green light. Golden State have a fluorescent light. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And when you have that type of freedom, the goal looks about three times bigger, right? Because, one, the, the, the type of – you know that you can miss a few and you ain't coming out, Right. And that's just the nature of the game. You're going to get your touches and it's easy to get into a rhythm. And it's not to minimize what he, uh, uh, what he's doing. I love him. He I mean, he's, this man is phenomenal with what he can do with that basketball. Uh, but he's also in the right system in the right time. So I know that one difference between the two of you is that you played your entire career dealing with Tourette syndrome, a, a condition of the nervous system which causes people to sometimes move or blurt out uncontrollably, sometimes repeating profane language. In your case, Tourette manifested itself in obsessive-compulsive behavior, a need to do things over and over and over again. And when you were younger, people said they called them just your habits. Um I don't think you were actually diagnosed with Tourette until you were in high school. Do you do you look back and wonder like how you managed to achieve what you did with Tourette? I I do, but I mean I know the answer. You know, it's only by the grace and mercy of God, man. Because at that and 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 God just put me in a family where yeah we didn't have a lot, and it was tough. But I was also surrounded by people like my grandmother and my uncle and my mother that they would tell you, hey, you know, you can, you know, you always see this pretty much as a child. You can be whatever you want to be, right? The sky's the limit. And 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 you believe it, right? For a while, you know, I, I think about it. And really when I started doing the book and then the, the documentary that's coming out, I uh, was talking to a guy that had it uh, because they ended up putting me on Haldol. And Haldol was like, wow, it made me gain so much weight. It was terrible. But when the guy told me that Haldol was a psychotic drug that they would give inmates and they would give people that were psychopaths to put them to sleep, I'm not one that looked to pat myself on the back. He said, man, you did all of that with Haldol? I almost was tempted to reach back and like, dog, I'm a I'm a bad man. <laughs> you know, it's good that I didn't know that because maybe it would have affected me differently. Um, but I do think about it. And I'm just so blessed because also Tourette's is, even though it makes it tough, it, it takes a longer time to do things, it also pushes you, and I would say this all the time. I say Tourette's pushed me where I myself would not have gone without it. Because when I wanted to stop, it wouldn't let me. Said so you have to finish this, or I'm gonna make your day miserable. And you didn't want that, because I mean, uh, uh, neck jerking, throwing your arms to the point where literally it feels like you're gonna pop your neck off. It feels like your brain is bouncing and hitting your skull. You're, you're tensing up real hard, about to dislocate your elbow. You're hitting wood. You're hitting something hard and you can't go soft because it has to feel perfect. You're getting dressed and undressed. I mean, you know, putting stuff on, taking off, putting on, take, doing moves over and over while you're tired, like near-death experiences every day pretty much. So it, it has a way 
of challenging you and pushing you beyond where you didn't think you could go. But also I think it transitioned to, to areas such as this, like, you know, taking positions, right? If you can send yourself through that abuse, if you can do all of that for this, right? Then if you don't do this, I'm gonna make your life uncomfortable. You gotta take position. You gotta take a stand. And it, they're carryovers to everything we do. So it also, in many ways, has benefited me way more than, than uh, like frustrated me. Nice. Mahmoud abdul Rauf. I greatly appreciate your time and joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. The former Denver Nugget speaking with CPR's Anthony Cotton. His new autobiography, In the Blink of an Eye, is about his life and the loss of his NBA career after his decision to protest injustice by refusing to stand for the national anthem. Abdul Rauf is also the focus of the forthcoming Showtime documentary, Stand. Noting again, his conversation with Anthony was recorded before officers were charged in the beating death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis and before footage of the fatal encounter was released. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In Colorado, you can farm potatoes, sweet corn, melons, peaches, chilies, and you can farm ice. This is what happens in Uray every winter. Ice farmers send the city's excess water down two miles of the Uncompadre Gorge's canyon walls. After about a month of careful monitoring and spraying, Uray Ice Park opens to the public. Since the mid-90s, this mecca of ice climbing draws thousands of people every year. Equipped with crampons, special boots, ropes, harnesses, and axes, they take on 150 different routes and contribute significantly to the local economy. Climbers also enjoy the ice park in Lake City and frozen waterfalls like Fish Creek in Steamboat Springs and Zapata in the San Luis Valley. The sport gained a lot of visibility in 2019 when the first ice climbing World Cup finals in America, featuring a 50-foot high wall of ice, came to downtown Denver. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Coble & Company. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Just north of downtown Denver, there's a bland building that authorities would rather you not know too much about. It is the Regional Transportation District's Treasury, where every nickel from its buses and trains is processed. CPR's Nathaniel Miner followed the money, literally. I'm in Denver's Capitol Hill neighborhood going downtown, and here comes the bus. Good morning. Thank you. For most bus riders, that $3 disappears forever. But today, we get to see where it and tens of thousands of dollars like it go every day. This is the counting room at RTD's Treasury Department. It's in a stodgy brick building. That's something of a bunker because a lot of money comes through this small room. Typically, it could be anywhere from $4,000 to $12,000 in coin. That's Gene Byron, RTD's Treasury Supervisor. Uh, the currency is somewhere around thirty dollars to $60,000 uh, a day in, uh, that we process. That's up to about $70,000 a day and about $12 million in cash every year. Most of it from buses. 
It comes into this facility every day in orange metal boxes, about the size of your oven at home. So I can show you real quick. So I'm opening up the front, and you can see how it all comes into us. Byron swings open the metal door. It's stuffed, full of paper currency, mostly single-dollar bills. Workers use a rake to pull the bills out. Then they're dumped onto tables in six small cubicles. And this is the most labor-intensive thing that we do in here. Most of the day, my people spend about two-thirds of the day sitting and sorting dollars. That's five or six hours spent handling hundreds and hundreds of bills, stacking them in plastic boxes, pulling out transfer tickets, and most days, a few counterfeits. The bills are then fed through an automatic counting machine. Change is fed through a counter too and sorted into cloth bags. A magnet pulls out foreign change, house keys, and other things people toss into the bus fare boxes, sometimes to try to cheat RTD and sometimes by mistake. This is our junk. Yeah. See Euro coins. Euros, tokens from Chuck E. Cheese. That's all set aside and auctioned off later. The U.S. currency is counted up and shipped to the bank. Byron says the work can be tedious, but that people seem to like it. I couldn't interview them for security reasons. RTD doesn't want to publicize who has access to all this money every day. There are cameras all over the facility. Byron wears a smock with no pockets. And my employees are wearing coveralls. Their pockets are also sewn shut or Velcroed shut. And uh, just to keep people honest, we don't want them to have pockets. Has there ever been a problem? I, I can't say never. It has not been a problem since I've been here. This whole operation is not cheap to run, but it is worth it. RTD collects about $12 million in cash fares every year, and nearly $80 million in total, including credit card purchases. It spends only about $10 million to process that. So it makes financial sense for RTD to charge fares. There's a bigger question, though, about whether it should charge or if transit should be free so the community could benefit from reduced pollution and traffic and not to mention free rides. RTD has been offering free fares on special occasions more often lately. That's due in part to state lawmakers who are trying to encourage people to drive less. But RTD's treasury manager, Don Young, says in general, passengers should have to pay. People want to pay. Uh, They're honest about it and they feel that uh, Quality service is worth something. RTD will likely reduce fares a little bit next year, but executives have not supported eliminating them altogether. So as long as RTD keeps charging to ride, there will be a crew here making sure the numbers add up. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And you can see photos of the RTD change counting operation at CPR.org. Happy birthday to Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. The classical composer would have turned 267 this past Friday. A fact our colleagues at CPR Classical are celebrating. That includes program director Monica Vischer and conductor, orchestrator, and educator Scott O'Neill. They join us ahead of a grand finale for their month of Mozart. And hello to both of you. Hello. Thanks. Monica, each day in January, you all have been sharing music and stories 
that define not just Mozart, but classical music itself. What's the distinction there? Well, starting with Mozart, there are extraordinary stories that shaped him. Uh, He's not just this prodigious genius, uh, but there were real-world pressures on him needing to work. He was often struggling to find it. There was the long shadow of his father, whom it seemed he couldn't ever please. Um, He was often poor, borrowing money, and all the while composing these exquisite works that uh, went on to influence the likes of Beethoven and others. Beethoven, of course, then revolutionized music, and it just has had this impact on music ever since. Mm, It makes me wonder if Mozart was trying to please his father. Is that, is that part of what drove him? <laughs> you, maybe you've wondered about that. Yes. I mean, I would have to say that that's, of course, if you've seen the movie Amadeus, right? Mm. Um, there's that fictional account at the end of how um, that was the haunting piece, never being able to really fully please his father. Scott, you host CPR's special series Behind the Baton, which helps demystify classical music. How does Mozart's legacy... Uh, how does his legacy resonate today? And uh, what would you like non-classical listeners to know about his artistry? Well, as far as his legacy today, I, in a world with so much chaos and uncertainty, I think this well-ordered beauty that goes through so much of his music is just what the doctor ordered. Well-ordered beauty. What a lovely phrase. You, you share a unique story in Behind the Baton at the piano in our CPR performance studio. Let's listen. It should come as no surprise that a character like Mozart would experience everything he experienced in life through music. Um, So the legend goes, when he was two years old, he heard a pig squeal and said, ah, G sharp. And his father ran to the piano and, oh my goodness, he's right. I have a genius for a son. Well, yes, you do, but that's the least of it. Um, Years later, he's an adult uh, living in Vienna at the time. And he visits a pet store and he sees a starling and he knows starlings are famous for being able to mimic sounds that they've heard. And so he decides he wants to teach this starling a theme that he had written before. And the theme goes like this. Sounds kind of bird-like, right? It's a little chirp to it. Well, it seems that the starling couldn't quite get it exactly. So the starling sang it back to him, but Mozart actually transcribed what the starling sang, and it was something more like... Fermata? But Mozart was so impressed, he wrote on the transcription, Es war schön. That was beautiful. And... Fell in love with this bird, decided to purchase it, and that starling lived with him for three years. Well, when it died, he had a very solemn occasion. He asked his friends to dress up in black. They all wore veils. He buried it in his backyard, and he wrote an elegy for the uh, starling, and it goes something like this. A little fool lies here whom I held dear, a starling in the prime of his brief time, and at, and at the end it wraps up, that he is now on high and from the sky, praises me without pay and his friendly way, yet unaware that death has choked his breath and thoughtless of the one 
whose rhyme is thus well done. So if you hear the 17th piano concerto, when they get to the finale, when you hear this theme, do you hear a chirping in here? Thank the performer for bringing out that bird-like character and think on Mozart's beloved starling. Oh my goodness, what a story. <laughs> it also occurs to me that the Starling becomes like his first recording device in a way, right? Is it a Starling or is it Memorex? <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you, you just finished a brand new series on Mozart's piano concertos at CPR's Grand Piano for Behind the Baton. Why focus on those of all Mozart's works? Well, the piano actually became more the instrument that we know today as a piano during his life. So, you know, Haydn was already the father of the symphony, so Mozart said, hey, he's a great pianist. I'm going to make this my... Uh, my vehicle that I'm going to write my best stuff for. And he literally becomes kind of the father of the piano concerto. He's writing, you know, four or five every year to produce by himself. And it's kind of what introduced him to Vienna as, hey, here's the next big thing. And look, piano concertos, these are fantastic. And they're still today kind of the earliest concertos that we still perform in the concert hall. How different did the piano sound then from the piano we know today? Uh, well, there were harpsichords yeah. and clavichords and now they've got this piano that kind of strikes a, a you know hits a uh, the string with a hammer instead of plucking it but they really uh, until they uh, got something that they called an escapement where you could hit the key and the hammer would would fly away from the string now yeah. you can sustain this and because now we can now we're building them out of you know uh, more sturdy uh, components now it can be louder and you know if you if you listen to the harpsichord concertos so to speak they're always with very small ensembles mm. well now with this new piano that makes a more resonant sound that rings suddenly you can have a whole orchestra and voila here we are in the classical piano concerto what a lovely evolution you also produced a podcast with cpr classicals carla walker called the great composers mozart and here's a taste you have to go back Almost to the very beginning. Yeah, very young. We actually have an anecdote from when he was four years old. At the time, he had had a few lessons with his father, but his father had really been pouring uh, most of his attention and efforts into Mozart's older sister, Nannerl. But Mozart, being Mozart, was picking some of this stuff up, just observing it. So one day, Leopold comes home from work, and he sees little Wolfgang scribbling on a sheet of paper on the floor and asks him, what, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm writing a keyboard concerto. I'm almost finished with the first part. Really? Well, let, let me see. It's not finished yet. No, no, no. Let me see. And, you know, it was kind of in a made-up musical notation, but Leopold could figure out what he was getting at. And tears came to his eyes, and he realized without any formal training, his son had an innate understanding of composition and how music is put together. At that moment, he realized this truly was, in his eyes, a gift from God. Leopold literally saw his role in training and promoting Wolfgang as a mission from God. Divine instructions. Absolutely. And he took it very seriously from that moment on. For the rest of his life, no doubt.
That's Scott O'Neill playing Mozart's first known tune playing on the Steinway here in the CPR Performance Studio. And we're going to spend some time exploring how these little kernels that we see in Mozart when he is four and five years old eventually turn into something like this. An excerpt of the great composers Mozart from our colleagues at CPR Classical. Monica, tomorrow is the grand finale of your tribute to Mozart. What's up your sleeve? Yeah, we're going to end our month of Mozart uh, at noon tomorrow with The Requiem. This is a bucket list piece, to say the <laughs> least, uh, not just because of its striking beauty, orchestra chorus for soloists, but it is Mozart's final work, unfinished, at his death of only 35 years old. Thank you so much for being with us. Such Thank stories. You. Monica you. Vischer, program director at CPR Classical, and Scott O'Neill, former conductor with the Colorado Symphony, a music educator, and host of CPR's Behind the Baton. Once again, happy birthday to Mozart, who'd be 267. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.